Since she was a teenager, Fania Kaplan had dedicated her life to politics. An anarchist turned socialist revolutionary, during her radicalization, she'd come to believe that assassinations were sometimes necessary. The first one she attempted was against a czarist official in 1906, which failed and sent her to Siberia. Twelve years later, 28-year-old Kaplan decided that the time had come for another Russian leader to die, Vladimir Lenin. On the afternoon of August 30th, 1918, Lenin gave a speech at the Mihailson Armaments Factory in Moscow. For over an hour, Lenin railed against the bourgeoisie while simultaneously promising victory in the ongoing civil war. As usual, he was met with thunderous applause. After his speech, Lenin made his way to his car. Kaplan, who had been waiting in the wings, saw her opportunity and took it. Two bullets struck Lenin, one through the neck and one in the shoulder, and another went through his jacket. He was immediately rushed to his apartment and operated on. Meanwhile, Kaplan was instantly arrested and taken to the Kremlin. For several days, secret police officers interrogated her, demanding to know why she tried to kill Comrade Lenin. Kaplan simply responded, I regard him as a traitor. The longer he lives, the further he'll push back the idea of socialism for dozens of years. Fania Kaplan was executed on September 3rd, and although Lenin survived the attempt on his life, Bolshevik soldiers demanded revenge. The Red Terror had begun. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. In this season of Dictators, we're exploring three of the 20th century's most famous Marxist-Leninist leaders, Vladimir Lenin, Fidel Castro, and Ho Chi Minh. Last week, we explored the rise of Vladimir Lenin and his journey from exiled revolutionary to leader of Russia. We examined how the execution of his older brother set him on a course to topple capitalism and establish the world's first socialist state, and how for 30 years he devoted himself to Marxism, transforming himself into the most important theorist since Marx himself. This week, we'll dive into Lenin's short but brutal reign. We'll explore how he fought to consolidate power, guided the Reds through a ruthless civil war, and struggled to ignite revolution across the globe. Please note that unlike last week's episode, the dates in today's episode correspond with the standard calendar, which was used in Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution. We'll head to the Kremlin, coming up. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. 
The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. For just over 30 years, Vladimir Lenin had dedicated his life to overthrowing the Romanov dynasty and toppling capitalism. During that time, he had slowly but surely developed his own Marxist-inspired theories and ideology that he believed would bring about a global socialist revolution. By the autumn of 1917, the Romanovs had fallen and the Bolsheviks had successfully thrust Lenin into power. It was time to make the transition from theory to practice. Lenin never considered himself to be vicious or violent. In his mind, whatever edict or decree he ordered was for the good of the masses. Socialism would be achieved by any means necessary, no matter the consequences or casualties. With that in mind, Lenin knew exactly how much power he suddenly wielded. And he realized that he couldn't waste this opportunity. 1917 had been a chaotic year for Russia. At any point, the Bolsheviks could lose it all. So from the moment he addressed the Second Congress of Soviets in November 1917, he became obsessively focused on how to maintain power. Because if he lost it, he lost his socialist dream. Immediately, Lenin and the Bolsheviks formed the Council of People's Commissars, or Sovnarkom, as the new governing institution. As chairman of the Sovnarkom, one of the first things Lenin ordered was press censorship, which was completely ironic and hypocritical since he and other Bolshevik leaders had been exiled in Siberia for peddling Marxist literature. The state now not only controlled the press, but in the days and weeks to come, they rounded up dissident journalists and shut down offices. Even socialist papers were closed if they didn't lean Bolshevik. Next came a series of decrees that sought to end the centuries-old system of feudalism. The decree on land abolished private property and redistributed property to the peasants. Meanwhile, Lenin implemented the same progressive policies that had swept through Europe in the late 19th century. He established an eight-hour workday, gave women various rights, and nationalized banks and large industries with the aim of ending capitalist exploitation against the working class. Finally, Lenin established the Cheka, the successor to the Akrana. Over the course of the Soviet Union's existence, the Cheka would undergo a series of name changes. It was known as the NKVD under Stalin, and finally, the KGB. But no matter the name, they were still the secret police. Lenin appointed Felix Zerzinski to head up the Cheka, and under his leadership, the agency became the most feared institution in the new government. They were, as Lenin described it, the party's sword and shield. 
In truth, as historian Victor Sebastian notes, the Cheka was more ruthless than the Akrana. But it is a question of degree and not a category difference. Most of the early Bolsheviks had long experience with the Akrana's methods, and the Cheka copied many of them. Almost all of these edicts from Lenin came within days and weeks of seizing power. Time was against him. He needed proof that he had a plan for Russia in case he lost power. And he knew that one of the biggest threats to his power was the Constituent Assembly. The Constituent Assembly had been planned by the Provisional Government as a step toward electoral democracy. The purpose was to have elected representatives draft a new constitution. And after a couple of delays, elections for the Constituent Assembly were scheduled to finally take place at the end of November. After seizing power, Lenin tried to postpone the elections until further notice, since he feared that rival factions could win control. However, Lenin was convinced to stand down by members of his own party. Even some of the more radical Bolsheviks argued that calling off the election would make them look bad. As it turned out, Lenin's instincts were correct. When the election came, the Bolsheviks only won 24% of the vote. Meanwhile, the rival Socialist Revolutionaries, or SRs, gained a whopping 39%. But there was an upside. To Lenin, the results only proved that the Constituent Assembly was more important to intellectuals than the masses. The Bolsheviks still had the support of the urban working class, and Lenin could still hold on to power. But he was going to have to take a different approach. On the afternoon of January 18, 1918, the Constituent Assembly gathered at the Tauride Palace in Petrograd. For several hours, SRs and Bolsheviks argued with each other. SRs denounced the October Revolution, while the Bolsheviks demanded the new assembly ratify Lenin's civil rights decrees. Lenin watched the bickering and knew that the entire event was a waste of time. So during a brief recess, he ordered the Red Guards to dissolve the assembly. However, he urged them not to use violence. The next day, when delegates arrived at the Tauride Palace, they were shocked to discover soldiers barring them from entry. A decree was also posted on the building gates, proclaiming the end of the assembly. Lenin's belief that the masses didn't really care about the assembly was spot on. In the wake of dissolution, there weren't any mass uprisings or even protests calling for the assembly to be reinstated. Democracy had lasted less than 24 hours. For all intents and purposes, the Bolsheviks now firmly held power. But Russia was still at war with itself, and by the next summer, that civil war was about to get a whole lot bloodier. Coming up... Lenin's Cheka unleashes hell on the so-called enemies of the people. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast, and I'm hosting the new limited series, Hollywood Scandals. We all know that Tinseltown is the land of glitz and glamour, but look closer past the allure of bright lights and red carpets. There, you'll find a more disturbing tale one filled with tragedies and transgressions so damaging they've turned hopes and dreams into high-profile nightmares. 
Every Monday on this Spotify original, discover the real-life dramas of some of entertainment's biggest names. From the mysterious drowning of Natalie Wood and the murder trials of comedian Fatty Arbuckle to the star clients of Hollywood Madam Heidi Fleiss. Each episode of Hollywood Scandals has been curated from shows across the ParCast network, covering over a century's worth of controversies, from the silent era into the digital age. Fame and fortune may be fleeting, but scandals, they stand the test of time. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Hollywood Scandals. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Within the first several months of his reign, 47-year-old Vladimir Lenin managed to consolidate power and dissolve the Constituent Assembly. Unfortunately, while he was focused on politics, there was another major crisis plaguing the country, a grain shortage. Famines had always been an issue in Russia, especially during times of war. In fact, rampant food shortages and bread lines were the final dominoes to drop in the toppling of the Romanov dynasty. And as part of his bid to win over the people, Lenin had promised them bread. Unfortunately, by the spring of 1918, the food crisis had become unmanageable. Some of this was due to residual effects of World War I. Some of it was because of disrupted rail transportation from the countryside to the cities, and some of it was due to lousy harvests. Either way, Lenin knew he needed to deflect responsibility, so he decided to give a face to the crisis, the Kulaks. The Kulaks were essentially rich peasants, the petite bourgeoisie, and there weren't many of them. Some of them owned their own land, some lent money to other peasants, and a small number of them owned their own equipment or had the means to hire a couple of workers outside of their immediate family. To Lenin, they were the perfect scapegoat. Lenin claimed their hoarding of food was responsible for the suffering of the masses. Thus, they were the enemy of the people. In May, Lenin established the Food Commissariat, whose sole job was to expropriate the grain throughout the countryside, a job that would require requisition brigades. According to historian Victor Sebastian, these requisition brigades were sent to more than 20,000 villages within the first two months of the decree. Usually they consisted of 75 men, armed with two or three machine guns, who would surround a village and demand that peasants hand over a set yield of grain. Often the brigades acted with extreme brutality, routinely torturing suspects until the right amount of grain was found. These armed units burned entire villages to the ground and murdered thousands of peasants, all of which Lenin felt was justified if it ultimately led to the establishment of his socialist dream state. But unsurprisingly, the grain seizures did little in the way of helping the masses. Most of the grain went to feed the Red Army. The peasants were furious, but they were the least of Lenin's worries. He had to deal with a much more threatening force, the White Army. The moment the Bolsheviks seized power, Russia was thrown into a civil war. On one side was the Red Army, created and commanded by Leon Trotsky, and on the other side, the White Army, a loose coalition of imperialists, liberals, and national conservatives who were all anti-Bolshevik. 
Lenin knew he made the right decision putting Trotsky in control of the Red Army. Even though Trotsky had zero combat experience, he was a skilled and intelligent tactician. Trotsky realized that they couldn't rely on former soldiers and untrained peasant conscripts for their army. So Trotsky proposed using former czarist officers to whip the ragtag army into shape. Most Bolshevik party leaders hated the idea of working with officers who used to answer to the czar. But in this case, Lenin sided with Trotsky. And while they weren't the most elite fighting units, the Red Army was, at the very least, unified, which was something the White Army couldn't claim. Apart from being anti-Bolshevik, none of the three main leaders could agree on anything. Some wanted to restore the Romanov democracy, while others wanted liberal democracy. These divisions existed on the battlefield as well. At no point did the three main white units link up. Instead, they were constantly fragmented throughout the south, east, and northwest of Russia. Any attempt they made to establish a unified front was easily cut off by the Red Army's guerrilla tactics. The atrocities that both the Reds and the Whites inflicted upon each other and civilians was horrific. But for Lenin, this was all part of maintaining power. He needed to not only eliminate the soldiers fighting against him, but the entirety of the bourgeoisie. And one way to annihilate the bourgeoisie was to remove a symbol they could rally behind, the surviving Romanovs. Since abdicating the throne, Nicholas Romanov and the rest of the royal family had never known freedom. Under the provisional government, the family was relocated from town to town throughout Siberia. When the Bolsheviks came to power, the family was transferred to the custody of Ural Soviet, the regional government in the Ural Mountains. And in April 1918, they were taken to the town of Yekaterinburg, over a thousand miles from Moscow. Lenin wanted Nicholas dead, but knew it needed to look right. He didn't fear the Russian reaction. Rather, he didn't want German retribution. After all, Nicholas and Kaiser Wilhelm were cousins. But by the summer of 1918, Lenin was backed into a corner. A legion of White Army-affiliated soldiers was dangerously close to Yekaterinburg. Should the White Army gain custody of the Romanovs, it could inspire a wave of anti-Bolshevism. At around 1.30 a.m. on July 17, 1918, the family physician, following the orders of a Cheka officer, awakened the Romanov family and told them to get dressed. They explained that the fighting was near and they needed to move for their own safety. The family, which included Nicholas, Alexandra, the five children, and a handful of retainers, was escorted down to the cellar. After a few minutes, an officer emerged and announced that the executive committee of the Ural Soviet had condemned them to death. Before the Romanovs could register what was happening, the execution squad opened fire. To this day, there is no direct evidence that Lenin gave the order to kill the entire Romanov family. Historian Victor Sebastian believes that Lenin likely gave the order verbally to his second-in-command and had him arrange the execution in order to distance himself from it. Initially, the Bolsheviks announced that Nicholas was the only one killed. 
The news was met with a shrug by Russian people, who mostly hated the former czar. But the gruesome execution of the Romanov family was merely a taste of atrocities to come. The next month, on August 30th, 1918, a socialist revolutionary named Fania Kaplan attempted to assassinate Lenin as he was leaving a Moscow factory. Two bullets struck Lenin, one in the shoulder and one through the neck. And although he survived his injuries, many Bolsheviks demanded blood. Later that same day, about 500 prisoners in Petrograd were summarily executed. The Red Terror, as it became known, swept the countryside like wildfire. Within the next two months, the Cheka executed over 6,000 people. And yet, Lenin became increasingly popular even among the non-Bolsheviks. Many throughout Russia believed that if Lenin died, the country could be thrown into even worse chaos. As one man wrote to his wife, Lenin is the backbone of the new body politic, the main support on which everything rests. That may sound strange, but despite the horrors of the Red Terror, the White Army was also employing their own White Terror throughout the countryside. And while Lenin was able to sell his brutal violence as a necessary element of class warfare, the White Terror was increasingly random. Anyone was a target. Even Alexander Kerensky, the deposed head of the provisional government, commented that there is no crime the white armies would not commit. Executions and torture have been committed, and often populations of whole villages have been flogged, including teachers and intellectuals. But despite the apparent randomness of the attacks, the group that the white armies chose as their main target were the Jews. Since several Bolshevik leaders, like Trotsky and Lev Kamenev, were ethnically Jewish, the White Army began an anti-Semitic campaign, claiming that Bolshevism was a Jewish conspiracy. One of the high commanders of the White Army even carried around a copy of The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a book of debunked anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. As the Civil War raged on, the White Army ratcheted up their anti-Jewish violence. In one city, Jews were held in a synagogue and burned alive. In another, the Jewish families were forced to watch as their girls were raped by soldiers. Of course, that doesn't mean the Bolsheviks didn't commit any pogroms themselves. However, Lenin didn't encourage violence against Jews because he didn't see them as the enemy. He even wrote that the Jews are our brothers being oppressed by the capitalists, our comrades in the struggle of socialism. It is the capitalists who inflame hatred against the Jews. Of course, as Dictators fans will recall, this belief would change once Joseph Stalin came to power years later. By the start of 1920, the Reds had essentially won the Russian Civil War. In the years to follow, there was continued fighting against white army factions, but most of it was reduced to nothing more than small-scale skirmishes. With fighting finally on the back burner, Lenin felt safe. Though there were feuds within the Bolshevik party, no one challenged Lenin himself. So, with the whites all but defeated, Lenin decided the time had come to finally spark the international socialist revolution he craved. It was time to spread his version of communism 
across the world. Coming up, Lenin dreams of global revolution, but is sidelined by more rebellions and his failing health. Now back to the story. By the start of 1920, the Russian Civil War was all but won. And with that victory, Vladimir Lenin could set his sights on achieving another goal, inciting global revolution. For a brief second, Lenin's hope that workers of the world would be inspired by the Bolshevik Revolution came to fruition. Between 1918 and 1919, German Social Democrats and Communists attempted to seize power in the post-World War I chaos. They were defeated, setting leftist groups back while the Weimar Republic came to power. But Lenin didn't see the suppression of the German leftists as a defeat. Rather, he became even more convinced that global revolution was right around the corner. It just needed a push. And to help revolutionaries around the world, Lenin created the Communist International, or Comintern. Established in the spring of 1919, the Comintern's goal was simple. Create a single global organization to overthrow capitalism. However, there was one caveat. Every communist party must mirror Bolshevik ideology. Party leaders were to expel any and all members who didn't conform to Bolshevism. Unfortunately, not everyone wanted to bow down to Lenin, and one group who sought independence above all else were the Poles. Poland had almost always been at odds with the Russians, constantly battling over territory and autonomy. With the dissolution of both the Russian and the German empires at the end of World War I, the Poles realized they could not only gain independence, but expand their territory. The chaos of the Russian Civil War had created a golden opportunity. Throughout the spring of 1920, the Poles launched a series of attacks against the Red Army and seized Lithuania and Belarusia, known today as Belarus. In return, Lenin went on the offensive with the goal of capturing Warsaw by the end of the summer. Unfortunately, Lenin underestimated the Polish army's resolve. The two sides clashed in Warsaw, and the Poles won. It was a humiliating defeat for the Russians and forced Lenin to sign the Treaty of Riga. Lenin lost land in Ukraine, Lithuania, Belarusia, and parts of Poland. And while he was licking his wounds, another crisis emerged. This time, it was led by people Lenin least expected. Throughout the chaotic summer of 1917, many soldiers and sailors defected to the Bolsheviks because of Lenin's promise to end the war with Germany. However, by 1921, one of the largest and most crucial regiments, the Kronstadt Sailors, had become disillusioned with Lenin. They hated the Red Terror, they hated the grain expropriation, and they hated that the fabled promise of democracy was just that, a fable. So at the end of February 1921, sailors from two battleships in Kronstadt drew up a list of demands, including the end of the Cheka, a new assembly, and an end to the restrictive economic policies. The following day, over 16,000 people joined the sailors in a massive protest. The Kronstadt sailors weren't planning a rebellion. All they wanted was for their voices to be heard. 
But Lenin saw them as insurgents, and he ordered Trotsky to take the Red Army and show no mercy. Trotsky arrived at the island fortress with around 50,000 troops. Over the course of several days, the battle turned into a massacre. Around 8,000 sailors fled to Finland, 2,000 were captured, and an estimated 1,000 were killed in action. The Kronstadt Rebellion became a turning point for Lenin and a moment of reflection. Since the grain acquisitions began, peasant uprisings had occurred sporadically, which were all beaten into submission by the Red Army. But with Kronstadt, Lenin faced opposition from his own supporters, which for the first time caused him to reflect on his policies. Coinciding with this was the fact that by 1921, the food shortages had escalated into one of the worst famines to ever plague Russia. He knew he needed to change something. So in the spring of 1921, Lenin announced the New Economic Policy, or NEP. The NEP brought about the end to Lenin's earliest economic policies, such as nationalization and grain expropriation. Lenin admitted failure and introduced a new policy, what he called state capitalism. The NEP ended the wholesale seizure of grain supplies. Instead, the state created a tax system. Once that tax was fulfilled, peasant farmers were allowed to sell their surplus for a profit in the new capitalist markets. However, some aspects of the economy, like finance, foreign trade, and large-scale industry, remained in control of the state. It was a weird blend of capitalism and socialism intended to placate the rural peasants over the urban proletariat. Naturally, this caused problems within the party. When Lenin announced the NEP, many Bolsheviks decried that he was betraying the revolution and socialism. And while Lenin acknowledged that it was something of a retreat, he also justified the move as a needed stimulus. Ironically, Lenin's NEP had the support of the Mensheviks and the agrarian-centric SRs. However, the infighting among the Bolsheviks made Lenin realize that the squabbling would derail his future plans. So not long after announcing the NEP, he also announced the banning of all political factions. This move put an end to the Mensheviks and the SRs. The party ideology was officially Bolshevik. Now and forever. In the short term, the NEP quickly turned the Russian economy around. In the cities, the petite bourgeoisie returned, creating a new wealth divide. The policies may have saved the people, but it became a blemish on socialist praxis. Unfortunately, Lenin wasn't able to bask in his success or see the NEP all the way through, because soon his health began to deteriorate. Ever since his days as a revolutionary in exile, Lenin was prone to bouts of insomnia and intense headaches. But now they were unmanageable. Finally, on the morning of May 26, 1922, the 52-year-old Lenin suffered a massive stroke that left him partially paralyzed and unable to speak. For the next few months, Lenin slowly recovered, and he soon became aware that high-ranking party members were trying to squeeze him out and gain power for themselves. The three key figures were Joseph Stalin, Lev Kamenev, and Grigory Zinoviev. 
Notably missing from this group was Leon Trotsky, who many saw as Lenin's heir apparent. Lenin knew that Stalin wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty on a path to total power. After all, Lenin had made good use of Stalin's ruthlessness during the old bank robbing days. And while Lenin was out of commission, Stalin was attempting to undermine his vision of the future. One of the big issues that Lenin and Stalin disagreed over was Stalin's home country of Georgia. Throughout 1921 and 1922, reorganization efforts were being discussed regarding the satellite states of the old Russian Empire. Lenin favored creating a federation, allowing the other states semi-autonomy within a new Soviet Union. Stalin, however, knew that Georgian nationalism was strong and the country might become a threat to Moscow's power. So he argued for a strong central government, forcing Georgia and the surrounding states into a single entity that answered to Moscow. Taking advantage of the weakened Lenin, Stalin managed to convince the Georgian Central Committee to vote on his plan to merge the country with its neighboring states. Those who disagreed were purged from the committee. The Georgians who were opposed to Stalin reached out to Lenin for help. But while Lenin was sympathetic to their plight, he was sidelined by two more strokes in December. With Lenin incapacitated, any hopes of Georgian autonomy were dashed. And by the end of the year, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or USSR, was officially born, with Georgia under Russian control. The battle between Lenin and Stalin came to a head at the end of 1922, when Lenin's alleged last testament was revealed to the party congress. This letter was a complete condemnation of Stalin, calling into question his personal character and the amount of power he had amassed. Lenin encouraged the party to find a way to expel Stalin. Unfortunately, Lenin didn't actually make a recommendation as to who should be his successor instead. This ultimately led to the formation of two factions within the party, Stalin versus Trotsky. After the controversy surrounding the Last Testament, Lenin grew too weak for just about anything. In March 1923, he suffered another stroke. For the rest of 1923, he was mostly confined to a wheelchair. On January 21st, 1924, 53-year-old Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov suffered a last massive stroke. Later that evening, the so-called leader of the proletariat revolution was pronounced dead. As dictators' listeners will recall, Lenin's death brought about the long-awaited showdown between Stalin and Trotsky. Because Stalin had amassed support during Lenin's ailing years, he ultimately gained control. What followed was the rapid descent into authoritarianism. Some of the repressive policies Lenin created were thrust into overdrive. Stalin was able to justify his actions by relating them to Lenin and officially formulating an ideology he called Marxism-Leninism. Although the seeds for the cult of Lenin were first sowed after the assassination attempt by Fania Kaplan, Stalin built it up to an even greater degree after Lenin's death. The city of Petrograd was renamed Leningrad. 
Stalin and his magnates even had Lenin's body embalmed and displayed in a grand mausoleum for the world to see. Lenin would have hated all this. One needs to look no further than the opening lines of his book, State and Revolution. Lenin writes, After great revolutionaries' death, attempts are made to convert them into harmless icons, to canonize them, and to hallow their names, while at the same time robbing the revolutionary theory of its substance. It's hard not to wonder what Lenin would have thought of the Soviet Union Stalin created in his name. In many respects, Stalin was simply continuing the policies started by Lenin. And for a man who claimed to be an advocate for the masses, Lenin's struggle to maintain power ultimately set the stage for the corruption, hypocrisy, and violence of nearly every future Marxist-Leninist dictatorship. Lenin's legacy can be summed up by a comrade-turned-critic, Angelika Bolobanova. She said that Lenin's tragedy was that he desired the good, but created the evil. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we return to the Caribbean as we begin our exploration of the longest reigning 20th century dictator, Fidel Castro. Among the many sources we used, we found Lenin by Victor Sebastian extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Billy Pace, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Isabella Way. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman and Kate Gallagher. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hey there, Carter again. Before you go, remember to check out my new podcast limited series, Hollywood Scandals. In anticipation of the Oscars, we're unearthing some of the most sordid controversies in showbiz history. Tune in every Monday. Follow Hollywood Scandals free only on Spotify. Spotify.